By rattling snake and bullfrogs croak, the singing robin and jackalope. By howling coyote and gator's snout, to the crossroads we dance about. Welcome to Southern Bramble, a podcast of crooked ways. Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast, so if you want to see Austin and I get extra spicy with special guest hosts, head on over to patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. If you subscribe, you'll get early access to podcast episodes, recorded video, monthly spell, sigil, or recipe outlines. You'll get to also ask listener questions. And if you join the top tier, you'll be acknowledged at the end of each episode. So please, if you'd like to support us, check us out on Patreon. I promise you won't regret it. And welcome back. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. And I'm Austin, Bane X Bramble on Instagram. How are you, Austin? I'm good. It is sunny. I just got back from the pool. How are you? Uh, it's not sunny here. It's super gray and rainy, but I actually prefer that type of weather on a Sunday afternoon, even though it's Monday. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's fine. We usually record on Sundays. It's fine. Um. But I wanted to also start by at least mentioning Happy Pride Month, Austin. It's the yeah. first of January. I'm sorry, first of June. Oh my gosh, which is yeah. first Pride Month. <laughs> happy Happy Pride Month. And I actually do want to talk with you more about that later in the episode. But we should at least talk about the topic before we get to that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about animism. And we briefly discussed that in the dual interview with each other in our opening episode. And I think both of us really kind of thought it needed a deeper dive. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Let's so get into it. Let's, let's do it. So first off, just so we can all be on the exact same page of understanding, let's start with the like dictionary's definition of, of what animism is. And... Uh, directly from it has two similar definitions, one being the attribution of a soul or spirit to plants, inanimate objects, and natural phenomena. Uh, two, uh, the belief in a supernatural power that organizes and animates the material universe. Is that kind of about how you feel it applies to you? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a very encompassing term it's very interesting how it gets described even in the definition where it says inanimate objects Mm. right um in the definition it will say that animism is described to inanimate objects so we animate those quote inanimate objects so how do you feel about it you know, I think that that's a very clean cut definition, but I think it gets a little bit grayer and fuzzier when we start applying it to our practice. Um, I don't think it necessarily lives within just inanimate objects. Uh, I mean, I think sometimes, well, that's, I guess that's not true because I was going to say animals themselves, but I guess they have their own individual spirit that isn't animus like the bones of that animal would be more closer to animism than a living animal, but plants are living, but I guess technically there's plants really aren't inanimate. Are they, would you say mm. they are? No. So an inanimate object would be something like um, a non organic material that 
like isn't alive essentially right that's kind of what i was thinking uh, but it also said of course natural phenomena so that could be that's kind of where it starts to get into more of the natural nature aspect of reality i would say right so to kind of take a look at this term it is actually it's not like new new but it's relatively mm-hmm. recent um it was kind of coined by an anthropologist named sir edward taylor um who kind of ascribes it as being the primal religion or like the first religion um i'm sure again i'm not a scholar but like i'm sure that's a really very like dumbed down like oh look at those indigenous people what silly animistic ideologies they had you know the primitive people etc etc i would agree that it is a cross-cultural phenomenon it occurs oh yeah it occurs in almost every culture it actually occurs in even uh, like i think as modern people it's particularly as witches and pagans we would like view that as very like oh when when christianity took over they really stomped animism out but that's actually not not true like animism followed pretty much most of our conceptualization of time until about uh the scientific revolution basically until the enlightenment period really where people kind of the perceptions of animism changed well, it's interesting looking back on some of my history growing up under in the church, the Episcopal church, it makes me kind of think about the idea of is the Holy Eucharist considered animism because you're taking in the spirit of Jesus Christ into the blood, into the, into the bread body. And I'm not sure, would that be considered animism? I think in many ways. Yeah. Cause you're, you're, you know, it's really interesting. You'll see the hosts, like the pieces of bread. Um, I mean, if it's a host, it's hosting something, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I, I, that's why they call it that, I'm pretty sure. Um, and that is actually like, it has to be blessed on a particular day. I'm pretty sure it's Wednesday um, in the Catholic church. Um, and, you know, and then it's presented on Sunday. But, you know, if it if it's not, blessed by a priest then it's just so it's just a cracker to that right. and and look at all of the the statues of jesus and mary i mean if you are praying to a statue of a cross of jesus on it i'm imagining that you are attributing the spirit that you are kind of working with is jesus christ in that cross right which is you know the long-held debate between C- catholics and and protestant reformation is, is like are you idolizing the cross and the saints and the statues or are you are you um, are are you (laughs) are you are you yeah Mm -hmm. it gets very (laughs) it gets very interesting throughout history i think but it is not um a new concept however i find have you noticed that it's kind of like exploded in popularity yeah 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 like it's like Mm -hmm. the thing now like oh i'm an animist well, you know, I think a lot of time, and this is just me throwing out a, a semi-substantiated opinion now that I'm put on the spot. I do, <laughs> think, I do think that a lot of people who maybe have identified as eclectic witches for a long time are starting to expand some of their awarenesses in different areas. And now that they're, that, be, that 
it's not just because it's become popularized, but because it's become more well-known, more talked about, you can kind of start to narrow down. It's not just eclectic where you're pulling from every, anywhere. It's that you've always pulled from what's right outside your door. You've always kind of pulled from, from what you're presented with in life. And sometimes that comes from different traditions. Sometimes that comes from different plant, plant spirits and whatnot. And we didn't have a word for it, didn't know what it was. I only in the past few years have learned about what animism actually is. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been thinking about when I, when I do these types of, of, of practices. I, I remember being a kid and the, okay, my God, don't tell anyone I told you this. This is super embarrassing. Okay, okay. I won't <laughs> okay. tell anyone. I don't tell this. anyone. But like, I obviously was confused about my own personal sexuality when I was younger. So uh, I would go on walks on my grandparents' land and I would take the tangled ball of yarn and put it on my head, pretending I had long hair. And like, you, obviously you can't see him. I do now. I grew up to have long hair, but when I was younger, I wanted long hair and I wanted to be a pretty girl. She was serving. Yes. Yeah. And I wore this tangled mess of yarn on my head, pretending to be a pretty girl. And as I was walking, I would I literally imagine the flowers and the trees around me being like, oh my God, who's she? She's so pretty. <gasps> <laughs> I mean, this is a child's mind, right? But I was, I, I was literally walking around in the forest on the land of my grandparents, them not realizing that I went out there to be complimented by the flowers. <laughs> she said, ah, I'm gagged. She said, nature, I, she is serving, mm-hmm. she is working, she is giving. I'm gagged. That was that was me as a child. You get a small glimpse of what little Marshall was like. <laughs> oh, honey, I used to walk with such a swish. I have, used like, to. A, a, <laughs> I still do. No, that's true. I still do. Um, I get compliments on it all the time. But, like, when Good I was a kid, you. like, wrist cocked, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm walk like a woman and I remember my, I, I used to get in so much trouble um <laughs> anyways I love that story thank you thank you don't tell anyone about that I'd be so embarrassed I won't it's the yarn wig for me it's the yarn but, wig for me too <laughs> but look you have like this luscious hair right now mm-hmm. tighten my bun yeah it's cute so if, if we're kind of getting down to it you can't really talk about animism without talking about spirits and I do think one of the things that I getting into different areas of witchcraft didn't quite understand is when people talk about spirits, they're not always referring to, you know, ghosts. <laughs> they're not always referring to like dead people. They're referring to something on a much grander scale under the umbrella term spirit. Right. I think animism and why it's so important, especially now, especially in this America and especially especially in our perceptions of of our spiritual practices is animism is a refusal to socio-capitalism and and I know it's like how did you how do you make that that jump from animism to to socio-capitalism and its refusal of it but the thing is is that what animism does if you truly start to live an animistic lifestyle, right? Um, because it's not just a belief, it is a praxis or a practice. It's employing a philosophy. Um, you'll notice that you are now understanding that you are part of a relationship with an mm. environment. 
that so one no, right there relationship right, relationship right so you are no longer outside of your environment you are no longer the self you are now in the environment you are a part of the environment you are not above nature you are not um uh romanticizing or worshiping nature you are now a part of that nature and that's dangerous and scary and and really really cool but that's that's kind of the that's why I think animism is so important is because it kind of refuses capitalism. It kind of refuses um, the notion that, oh, I just need to buy everything and that's what's going to give me magic. And that's what uh, magic is, is, is having the tools and, and things like that. And it forces you to build relationship with spirit. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of like this network that you're creating that you're building the more you kind of build that relationship you're building a network because what's interesting i loved i learned this i think it was called i'm so angry i didn't look up the word before but um i was learning about the type of fungi that grows in forests and they were it was in um uh, like mycelium Mycelia, yes. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm so glad you said it. The mycelia that grows under the ground, under the trees, that connects not only forests, but trees to other trees across the street, to other trees and shrubs, sometimes even miles away, in actual dense forests. You can cut down a tree, excuse me, you can cut down a tree, and the other trees will recognize the distress, and it will release some of its own nutrients to make its way to that plant to help it survive. Uh, because the mycelia, this type of really almost root hair-like fungi that lives underneath the earth, connects, creating a relationship with all of the, the trees, the plants, the shrubs, the dirt, uh, the worms within the dirt. Like it connects. We, we literally know this. This is a scientific fact. I think that's something that is a, a great representation of what animism truly is and how we can connect with it. I can work with a tree outside that's going to connect to a larger scale network within my entire city. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wanted to ask you before we really kind of dig in to our conversation, how do you define animism personally? I know we just went over mm-hmm. like the the uh, the textbook term, but... For me, animism is, it's, it's kind of simple, but it gets a little complex. It's recognizing the spirit within everything and finding out, one, if I want to build a relationship with that spirit. If I do, what type of things can I offer it that it's going to in return offer me? Everything is a type of, it's a relationship, it's a trade. Um, trade doesn't always necessarily mean something like monetarily, but sometimes you know, every time you drink tea, you're imbibing the spirit of those those herbal plants that go in there. You are creating a trade. Sometimes it's the energy it takes to extract it and, and maybe even grow it and water it on a regular basis for them to give you that black tea caffeine that you need in your chai. Or maybe it's um, the spirit of fire you invite into your home when you burn something in your fireplace or a candle. Like, you are creating a relationship with all of these things. And sometimes the only thing you're giving back is gratitude. So I know for me, one of the things that has helped me in the process of recognizing my own personal belief in animism is it increases my level of awareness and gratitude. So I 
I was literally thinking right before we got started, I took a sip of my water and it was super cold, very refreshing. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, I, I'm so grateful for this right now because my mouth is dry and I was thirsty. And it made me start to kind of think about the idea of being grateful for the spirit of water for quenching my thirst. And it kind of goes and grows and grows from there. Right. I think for me personally, animism is recognizing that there is divine spark within everything, within every act, with every... And I, I'm wondering, I'm like, is that really... I, I wouldn't say it's like a pantheist expression of, of animism, which pantheism and animism, for those who don't know, is a little different. Uh, pantheism means that it's all coming from one God source. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm getting that correctly. And animism is, is individual spirits. Um, so for me, I, I lean a little bit. It can be both at the same time though. So it's not one or the other. Um, I lean a little bit more towards specifically animism in, in the idea or the belief that everything contains divine spark. Everything contains in some way consciousness, whether that is up to you uh, to make that connection, right? If you're walking down a street, you don't talk to every single person that you see. You don't hear every conversation that's going on because you're not a part of every conversation. Um, so animism is, is, you know, building those relationships with people. And the reason I say um, you don't on around you is because I don't think we hear or see every spirit that's going on around us, right? We're not in part of every conversation within those spirits, um, whether that's in the celestial, the natural, or, you know, the world above us, below us, beside us, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I think it is kind of reaching out to different spirits and, and especially the ones that are in your own environment and relating to them. No, absolutely. I like that. You're not part of every conversation, but it doesn't mean that conversation's not happening. Right, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I, I, I the the conversation thing made sense in my head and then I said it and I was like, eh, you said that with no context. Oh, no worry. I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, so what are some animistic um, ideas that you, you have, Marshall? How do you employ animism into your praxis? Well, I think it'd be great to kind of start with some of the simpler ones and then kind of grow from there so we can see some of the more grand scale. But some of the most obvious ones are the things that we as practitioners work with on a regular basis. Uh, plants, stones, bones, uh, sigils. I mean, if you take a plant, I mean, a lot of us use essential oils, whether you're a practitioner or just, you know, a yoga mom. <laughs> essential oils are everywhere now. Not and a yoga mom. Not a yoga mom. I know, right? Um, it's interesting. I even saw this TikTok earlier and I loved it because it was talking about, it was a little video. Did you see it in my story? Is, is it the one where, there, where they like showed you the distillation process? Yes, the distillation process. And they talk yeah. about the, the belief in, in extracting the spirit of lavender, extracting the spirit of rosemary. So when you buy that essential oil or you make that essential oil, you're extracting the spirit using a heat method, uh, a 
to pull the soul of that plant out and then be used in some sort of way, shape or fashion. We do that with our tea. We do that with our hot bean juice every morning. I'm talking about coffee. Mm. <laughs> you said chai tea earlier and I was like, Damn, yes. I want a chai tea latte. Chai tea is a fantastic spirit builder. I call it my, um, you better work potion. Yes. It really, it really gives you a punch. I wanted to hang on plants for a minute. And I also wanted to hang. Yeah. Let's hang with the, with the, the green spirits. Um, so are you, do you know much about alchemy, Mark Marshall? Um, not a huge amount. The closest thing I ever did was making true rose water where, like in a, a janky home system with an upside down uh, pot lid. lid. Yes. You know what? That's fair. I've totally done that too. When I was a kid, my dad actually helped me make a still. And really? That, yeah. We had a, a nice so rose me. bush. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun, but I didn't know what I was doing. Right. That was the issue. But I did make some, some cool hydrosols. Um, in alchemy, uh, if, if, you and I mean royally you. If you guys aren't familiar with Robert Bartlett's work, he is a uh, lab alchemist. Um, he's a modern alchemist. Uh, I believe he knows quite a bit about medieval alchemy in theory and in practicum, and uh, he does a lot of work with plant alchemy and things like that. So when you're talking about extracting the spirit of plant matter or the soul. Um, that is the oil, you know, and, but you can do that with a lot of other things besides just plants. Oh yeah. But I mean, like the thing that you're doing with plants, most of the time we don't think about that. That's what we're doing. But I actually, I was um, listening to Jalen Cross on Invoking Witchcraft and they were talking about when you take a smoke bundle and you are waving it around, you're extracting the spirit of that plant through the smoke. When you Absolutely. throw when you throw herbs into a fire or you're doing a, a mixed fumigation like incense and you have several of these herbs and resins in there and you put them over a hot coal and they start to sizzle and burn, you're using that coal again to extract the spirits. You're working with the spirit of that plant. And it kind of goes back to that very first conversation we had on the first episode. We don't use ingredients. We are building a relationship to network with these spirits of these plants, of these resins. I mean... There are multiple cross-cultural belief systems that follow that frankincense is an herb of the, sorry, is a resin of the divine. It's a resin of, of, of deeply spiritual divinity. If you want to, I think I just repeated myself, but, (laughs) and so like Catholic churches, the Episcopal church I grew up did frankincense and myrrh. We hear about it in, in so many religious texts and ceremonies. I use frankincense and myrrh when I want to do something that's particularly uh, a little bit more either divination or or divine spirit oriented mm-hmm. versus say if I want to use dragon's blood resin and dragon's blood resin has a completely different type of of spirit if you want to look that up in a correspondence book or if you are building a a relationship with with dragon's blood I love dragon's blood I use it in a ton of things yeah absolutely um a lot of people, when they ask me questions, I've been talking about my rose plant and a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, have been asking me about the rose plant. And so they say, so what, how did you get into contact with this spirit? So a lot of it is 
ingestion of the plant. Now, obviously you want to be careful, not every plant you can ingest, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when we talk about plant spirit shamanism, um, and I say the S word shamanism very lightly, I'm not claiming to be a shaman, but I do, you know, a lot of animistic and magical beliefs come from shamanistic perspectives, right? Um, but personally, I believe that shaman is a community given title, not one you take for yourself. Um, anyways, when you are ingesting these plants, right, whether you're breathing in them in through smoke, like you said, or in a tea or in an unguent or like a, like a salve or something like that, or, you know, you're eating them, that is actually being partially, you know, possessed by the plant and you are taking part in becoming one with that plant spirit. And that is a part of the work that I did to communicate with this rose. And you can do this in several different ways. Um, alchemical medications like spagyrics or essential oils or, or suffumigations, which, excuse me, I think are the most accessible besides like teas or things like that. So yeah, I think being part of the plant is the best way to get the, get to know the plant and that's and also I mean, growing. Yeah. Growing. Oh my gosh. That's a big one too. But when, I mean, I just literally put out a a post the other day and it was tea is just a potion in a single serving size. I love that idea. Most people don't think about potions as, as teas the same way. Um, Historically potions, brews and, and, and tinctures, these were, these were all um, a lot of times medicinals. You were literally using the spirit of this plant to help heal you, to help uh, numb pain, to help with stomach cramping you were imbibing these spirits and you were inviting them into your body to do their job and sometimes their jobs were wildly different of course um but i also sometimes when i'm doing different rituals or i'm trying to work with the spirit i might work with it in several ways i might have a tea that i have or a potion that i have before or during i might light some in the incense as well um and it's kind of funny like i'm really direct when it comes to some of my spell work or my rituals, I sometimes don't have these long invocations written out. Sometimes I sit down, I hold this plant before I put it directly onto the coal. I roll it around in my hand. I take, I take deep breaths of it. And so I'm smelling it. I'm really kind of feeling it in the palms of my hand. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. The only thing I can think of right now is <laughs> huff it pig. Oh my God. <laughs> And back to pride. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We might have to cut that part out. It's fine. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's okay. We're explicit. Uh, um, but no, I do. I do. I like to take a huge whiff of it. I like to breathe it in. I like to feel like I'm understanding what this herb, what this plant is. Sometimes it has no sense at all, but that also gives me more information. I want to try to work with this spirit in a way that I'm taking a little bit of it into myself and I'm giving it some, I'm combining it with my will, combining it with my intention for whatever change I'm trying to create within reality. And I will sometimes just flat out say out loud, um, you know, spirit of mugwort, I take you inside of me and I want to 
uh, uh, become one with you so I can evoke or invoke your power and make this happen to open my third eye so I can do this tarot reading and, and have a deeper glimpse into the subject matter I want information on, or I want to uh, bring more prosperity into my life and I'm going to use cinnamon and mint and a bay leaf with the word written on it. I'm going to talk to each one of those. It doesn't look as cute as, as, you know, throwing some stuff on a coal, saying an incantation and then poof, it happens. But it seems to be a little bit more real for me when I have those conversations. That's how I talk to these plants. No, I, actually, I actually really like that is, and I think that's um, not to sound incredibly dogmatic, but I think a lot of the times, again, going back to this refusal for capitalism, we have this idea from what I, I personally see, um, not too much because I stay in my own little, my own little uh, folkloric witchcraft hole um, and I like it there, it's safe. Um, but what I see in a lot of like, TikTokery and and things like that not to shit on anyone personally but a lot of the times you're going to see these like you know mix x y and z together and again using them as an ingredient um when really these are people you know I, they're not human people but these these spirits are people right and i've had very powerful experiences with with um not just plants, but oftentimes plants that are like, I'm not going to what I think that they're going to be uh, helping me out with or what I'm going to be learning from them. They have nothing to do with that. Like the rose, like some other plants that I've worked with, um, getting visionary experiences from these plants as well has been something that's very interesting to me. And then oftentimes <clears throat> what will happen is I'll have spirits come to me and they'll be like, okay, cool. You met with me. You need to go to this other spirit. You know, um, you have to find this other spirit out. And that takes trance work or journeying or, or talking to um, my familiar spirit or, um, going to a different plant, you know? So these relationships build on top of each other. And I think that's very important. I completely agree. We also have a couple other things. We have things like stones. I know a lot of uh, practitioners who like to use rocks, crystals, uh, uh, different types of, of natural glasses. All of these, again, also carry spirit with them. I... I actually have a little necklace. I'm going to put it on my, my page later on today, but I just got it recently. It's a very, very dark, dense, raw peridot. And mm. it's funny. I've looked up the definition of peridot, but peridot for me has a little bit more of a nuanced uh, uh, connection. Uh, personally, I also understand learning the history of peridot. It's natural olivine. That's the mineral that makes it up. And olivine was the first mineral to be truly... Uh, formed from the cooling magma of well, pretty much any volcano, but also the creation of this planet. It's one of the oh, first. Cool. It, a diamond was technically the first one to form, but it was so dense and it, it wasn't really cooled the same way, but the first mineral to really kind of uh, visibly and, and, and tangibly form was olivine. And olivine, then of course, as as the minerals started to cool at different temperatures that's how you get the different ones that built it up but olivine was the one 
that really kind of comes back to the the seed of creation for me because it was one of the first minerals that was created in the formation of this planet. So I wear my olivine, I wear this peridot because I feel like it is a seed or spark of creation, something building, something, something growing, something evolving. So I like to wear that. And I feel like when I need to kind of do something or, or focus, I can use that necklace as a, as a channel almost right here in my throat. I like that. I like Thank that you. a lot. You so You're so welcome. I, um, <laughs> I okay, y'all know I'm not a huge crystal kind of gal, but I have this, um, it's like a crystal shaped egg, right? Somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's actually not a crystal. It's, it's a mineral. It's a uh, bloodstone. Um, I picked it up a really long time ago. I've had it for years. I probably was like 13 or so. Um, which wasn't very long ago, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. no, I'm just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, and I've never looked this up. I've never like, this is even before I understood animism. Um, but I just knew it was for broken bones and like uh, making tinctures out of it. You shouldn't do that, by the way. Don't, don't throw random uh, minerals and rocks into alcohol and then drink it. Don't do that. <laughs> that that's my only disclaimer. Um, but I, I knew like it was a very healing stone. Um, and I still have it uh, just in case I ever need it. Um, al- along with that, I love, uh, you know, fossils, minerals, um, using rocks like holy stones and, and, you know, keeping them close. Rocks are very important. They prevent erosion. Um, rocks are, or, or stones are memories of the earth that have been, uh, deeply embedded into the soil, right? Like if you want to know time travel, if you want to know how to, to view things that have happened in the past, like go to rocks, go to the soil, go like dig for it, literally dig for it. I find um, there are some very interesting spirits that are embedded in the soil. I love that. And of course, you know, there's also things like hagstones. Those are really popular in a lot of different types of uh, folk traditions. You find that that stone with that natural hole in the center. People use them as good luck charms for their homes and jewelry. Um, they're kind of known to have a sense of, of, of mystery and power. Those can be channeled for different things. And of course, it's, I'm literally looking outside my door and I'm looking at the stepping stones that are in our, our little dog park. And it's kind of funny because you could make a relationship with some of those stepping stones. They support you. They keep your feet from getting dirty. You can thank them on a regular basis. You could also, once building this relationship with them, I could ask, hey, I got someone I don't like that I want to put in a jar and put in the ground. Nothing grows underneath you. Would you mind keeping that under there for me and making sure that nothing grows for them either? Ooh, I like that. I know. And only, and it works so well because every time I stepped on it, I gave a sense of gratitude. Maybe I put some bird seed out there for the birds to come. Maybe you put some plants out there to build more plant spirits that's going to support your garden with those stepping stones. These are ways we can kind of build that network. Yeah, give, give, them, give them someone's name and put their name under it. <laughs> I mean, I like hey. That. 
I, I mean, hey, I thought it was kind of an interesting idea when I thought of, when I kind of thought of it. I was like, that's that might be a, a great relationship to build outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, bones. Let's talk about bones because mm. they carry spirits with them. You use bones in your practice, don't you? Uh, yeah, just one or two. Just one or two. <laughs> um, I do. I, I have uh, a, quite a, a little collection of, of bones and things. Um, yes. Yes, I do. Um, bones are really integral. Firstly and foremostly, I am currently working on um, building a uh, for use for divination sorry um that's going to be probably going to take a long time to find the right bones um i have a very particular process of going about it it's not even a process at all they the bones have to be gifted to me or given to me i can't just buy them i can't um like buy buy a bone set i think that's kind of cheating personally but you do you um but yeah so i'm i'm working on building a practice with um bone reading on top of that bones can be connections to of course the dead they can be connections to the animals or people that they've came from and they are also known as as spirit houses bones are kind of like hollow and spongy and um there's an interesting practice in naples uh i believe uh, Mallory Vaudois has talked about this. Uh, Naples is for necromancers is like a, like a report I think that she's done, but she's talked about the practice of where um, in Naples, Italy, they'll, they'll have people who will take the bones or the skulls of people who don't have names. Right. And they'll give them little, they'll give them little spirit houses and, you know, treat them like family. And these, this, this folk necromancy practice is, is very important to a lot of people. And for them, it's, you know, they, they would consider themselves good Christian people just taking care of the dead. And in necromancy, I've heard the saying that bone speaks to bone, death speaks to death. I know a lot of people use bones in different types of necromancy work where you are trying to speak out, whether that's for or give gratitude and thanks or ask for favors from, from dead ancestors, dead people they like or dislike. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Nec- uh, do you work do you do a lot of necromantic work in your practice i don't my work personally has been slightly devoid of necromancy i do have an uh, uh, an ancestor altar which has actually technically only one of my living sorry one of my blood ancestors on there and then several other people that i have connections to within life that have, have passed on but i don't do a lot of work as in necromancy style work with them as much as I do just honoring them, remembering them and talking to them. Uh, I would consider that. I know some people are like um, ancestral veneration and necromancy are separate things. Mm-hmm. I don't, I consider them the same thing. Personally. Well, I mean, necromancy could have a much larger umbrella than we sometimes give it credit for. I think sometimes people really pigeonhole that's working with the dead. Well, y- you know, so, so is saint work. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much. So St. Work is, is quite necromantic. I find, especially, um, 
it's interesting. There's, you know, necromancy, which is working with the dead. And then um, technically speaking, dead bones or the, the bones of the dead or remnants of the dead, right? And that's technically necromancy. And then you have, um, you know, working with the shades, which is called something else, which the term is slipping my mind right now. And I, I can't remember what it is. It begins with an S, but it's essentially divination with shades. And that's basically calling spirits out of the, out of the dark, you know, okay. no, no connection of, of who they are. I think it all is necromancy as uh, for the terms that we use it to put it simply, mm-hmm. but necromancy has become very uh, pressing in what I do um, and beyond uh, honoring the ancestors or honoring the dead. Although that's still the foundation of, of the necromantic practice that I have. Uh, yeah. But building on top of that is, is, it's getting weird. It's getting weird over here, Marshall. That's okay. I like weird. Um, so another one that I would love to talk about is sigils, because I love making sigils. And most people wouldn't necessarily think of those off of the bat when you're talking about animism, but every single sigil that I make is a a intention statement it's a a piece of my will that i have taken from my mind from my heart written on paper and then reduced down into a symbol so i'm giving it a bit not of my spirit but i'm giving it a spirit i'm get i'm giving it a sort of an animation if you will um i'm giving it life when i breathe on it when i uh, spit on it when i pee on it whatever <laughs> like we love we, to pee on it. We do, we do. When, when you do this with your sigils, you are activating their life force, their little spirits, whether that's something you put in art, whether that's something that you burn and then you don't work with again because you've sent that spirit off to do its job. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that grows from the ground. Um, uh, here's an interesting example. Look at water. When we talk about the spirit of water, there's so many different aspects of this. Look at the way that we collect things like moon water, full moon water. That in itself is going to have a type of soul that is different from something like storm water. It's going to have a different spirit that has something from snow water. Like I have all of these waters and I barely do much of anything with them because I've collected them a while ago. But I do kind of recognize that each one of them has a very, very different type of spirit, a different type of intention and and they offer different types of flavors of what they're, they're willing to kind of do with you. If that makes sense. Right. Like their virtues, their virtues. Yes. Thank you. I, um, find sigil making. I, I know I always joke about come sigils. Um, I actually well, don't do. <laughs> there's plenty to joke about when it comes to come sigils. I don't do them very often, actually. I don't uh, either. That's funny. I mean, <laughs> Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is an explicit podcast. We can go ahead and say it. I have, but I actually don't do them that often because there are so many other ways you could do that, especially if you're out in public. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm just trying to enjoy myself. Like, I don't right. want to do magic. <laughs> right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I find um, on top of that, also going into sigil work because a lot of the times I'll do sigils or symbols on top of boxes or um, there's a lot of things I put symbols on strange markings everywhere in my in my home Um, but part of part of the sigil is the name it is also 
um, the creation or the synthesization of spirits or thought forms, right? Mm -hmm. I think those are separate but similar entities, right? So in a lot of folk traditions, I don't want to speak for all folk, folk traditions, but in several folk traditions, when you are putting together a charm bag, um, or making a poppet or, or something like that, or making a bundle, what you were doing is you were actually either getting several different spirits and, and having them support each other to do the work that needs done, mm. or you are synthesizing these spirits together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, particularly in like charm bags and things like that, or, and I think the sigil is, is very important as well, because that's kind of giving the spirit its name or its symbol, or Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's calling card. Yes. And I am one that usually likes to kind of have a set of, of pre-created sigils and I'll use them in things. I'm not one that makes a brand new one for every single time I need it. So if I have a protection sigil, that's this protection sigil I'm going to use on lots of different things. I'm probably not going to make a new protection sigil every single time unless it changes what I'm trying to get out of it. If it changes the flavor of its virtue. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know that's fair. Agrippa but, has... And that's my personal way. I know some people do a new one every time. No, I think that's fair. I, I have variations too. Like it's the same skeleton of the sigil, but mm-hmm. it changes a little bit, you know? Agrippa has some um, sigils for conjuring like water spirits. If you don't know the specific name of the particular water spirit that you're working with, you know, you use like XYZ sigil to find out its name or to find out a name. And then you, you know, that that's kind of like your, your one-time directory introductory phone call i to find that is that in the uh books of occult philosophy yes okay um so now that we're kind of here let's kind of go a little bit grander scale we've talked about some of the 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 simple things that we work with on a regular basis but let's start thinking about uh funny enough let's go ahead i will throw out this example how many of how many of you like you're all going to answer <laughs> raise your hand and yeah. Uh, right so austin have you ever been to a marina before or a uh, a dock with boats on it i have i live in florida so they're they're around right so have you ever noticed that every single boat is named yes we name our boats because we're literally giving them a personality we give them a life we do things on them whatever that might be sometimes they sit there sit and kind of stale in the marina sometimes they're taken out on the ocean every single day. These, these boats that we name are named because we're giving them personality. We're giving it and recognizing its spirit. Uh, and we create a relationship with it. We do that with our cars. You ever seen Christine? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I used to call uh, one of my cars Christine because I was always waiting for it to blow up on me. Excellent. My, uh, I had a friend that named her Stiletto. It was black and super sleek. That kind of sounds hot. I, I like know, that. right? I um, yeah. I wanted to like talk about just objects or things that like like cars, right? Like feeding your car's spirit. I think that might sound silly in this again very capitalist, devoid of spirit society. Even even in a witchcraft community, I think it's very like you take your witchcraft 
hat off and you put it on when you want it to. And mm. I, I, for me, that's not quite how I see things. You kind of always have to, you're always wearing your, your witch's mark. Right. Mm. And so for me, like I um, recently got a new car. Um, it's not a new car. It's a very old car that is new to me. And, you know, the first thing that I did when I drove it home is that I burned some incense on the outside of it. And, you know, I did a small ritual um, kind of honoring this car's spirit uh, and, you know, gave it a name. So, which I won't say. Um, but, but I think that's very, you know, it sounds really silly, but I can tell you I have a weird superstition Everybody I've ever known who has brought a new car to their home and like never named it or never thanked it for its service, they've gotten in a car wreck like two weeks later. Really? Everyone? Like almost everybody that I've known personally. Oh my gosh, you're surrounded by horrible drivers. I'm just going to say that. Right now. <laughs> I do. Um, I do live in Florida. That's fair. You, you know what? We've stated that. That's very true. <laughs> Well, I mean, we do that with our homes as well. We move into a new house. We might want to do a smoke cleanse. We might want to say thank you. We need to recognize the spirits of our home. I saw a tweet earlier and I actually retweeted it and commented because I loved it so much. Um, I have been feeling somewhat stagnant in my energy lately. I've been feeling kind of, uh, uh, not, not immobile, just like, you know, stale I have and, and unmotivated. And then today I was like, okay, I've got to clean my house a little bit. And I started putting things away. I did the dishes. I did some laundry. I, you know, I, I cleaned up and it's so funny because the moment, the moment I put some energy back into creating a more organized living space, I could feel a change in my living space. I could feel the shift of, of I don't feel stifled. I don't feel unmotivated. I think now I'm going to go to the gym and then I need to go to the grocery store and I have to make sure that when I get back, I write everything down for the podcast I'm doing later today. I'm going to make sure to take notes and screen grab. And while I'm over there and it, it just continues to spiral. And this is after several weeks of most weekends, just kind of chilling on the couch because I have been unmotivated. Um, I think I actually just finished American Brujeria by Jalen Cross. And I love uh-huh. how... He talks about before you do a home cleansing, before you do this type of ritual, clean your damn house. <laughs> the spirits do not like a messy home because it, it's not that they get lost. It's that they get stifled. The energy is stifling in there. It's very um, immobile and, and cluttered. It's not just things. It's also the energy and the spirits feel that. And I feel so much better after just that time out of cleaning. Well, think about it this way. Girl, have you ever been over to Trade's house and their house is a mess? Mm-hmm. Girl, I do not. If you are, if you're living in a slovenly house, like, I can't imagine how you are. Like, I don't want to go mm-hmm. over to somebody's slovenly apartment and have slovenly sex. Like, absolutely not. So mm-hmm. I don't think that your spirits appreciate your house being messy either. Nor does the house spirit itself, right? It, You know, your house takes care of your house or apartment or, or, you know, wherever you live. Um, it takes care of you. It wants when, to be taken care of back. When you neglect your, your living space, your living space is going to start kind of neglecting you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, 
Cecil Williamson, I was listening to an interview about him and it, he had such an animistic perspective on things that he would like speak to his television and his toaster and um, things like that. And when he passed on and I believe it was his daughter's, who inherited a lot his house and a lot of his appliances and things like that. They could never get any of it to work because he, he spent so much time talking to them, mm-hmm. right. And saying good morning to his coffee cup or, you know, toaster when he woke up in the morning. So I think thinking about these things quite minutely can make, again, a big impact on your praxis and your life. Um, because again, it is a recognition that you are a part of an environment. You are not above that environment. Um, you are in that environment. And, and animism is a relationship about your environment and the spirits that are within it. And I think if we adopted, and I know actually several people who are, who are much smarter and much uh, better animists than I am have, have spoken about this, is that understanding an animistic perspective is one of the ways that we can cure um, a lot of the environmental problems that we have right now. Oh yeah. I mean, just imagine how much more you would recycle if you thought, well, I don't want to throw this spirit away, you know? Right. Right. And also just like, you know, littering less and, and, how we're, how does capitalism impact our environment and how can we be more sustainable with the things that we grow, like mm-hmm. using um, hemp, which doesn't take as much water as, as trees and, you know, using hemp products for paper and concrete and things like that. Utilizing the way that we can um, employ technology to better our lives as well, you know, um, kind of forcing us to move away from petrol and, and, uh, you know, when we don't need it right now, like we have the technology to use electronic cars, but nobody wants to invest in taking that big step. Mm. So that's why we don't, except for Tesla. Um, right. <laughs> not musk uh, <laughs> but the, the, my point is is that you know when we take on a more animistic perspective i think it will really it, it changed my perspective on the way that i view things absolutely i mean like if we want to even kind of go bigger you kind of start to get into less homes cars boats let's get to your environment let's get the spirit of the city I live in a big city in Texas. There, my city has a spirit. I mean, the spirit of my city is something that I have a relationship with because I've I've lived here in the suburb of the city my whole life, and now I'm actually in the dead center of this city. So, I have to recognize that I live in an urban area that has spirit to it, and I, it might be what you might consider the genius loci, um, the local land spirit, or the main source of of something. I don't want to say higher than the little land spirits, but I mean, the whole overall divinity of this spot of land that I live on, on this planet. And, and it's in a city, so it's chaotic, it's industrial. Um, there's lots of greenery, but there's also lots of roads, so it's cement. But, but then there's 
then there's these, these beautiful lakes and rivers that are within them and they have their own energy that adds to that city. So it doesn't just kind of live within your backyard or your trees or your stones. It's your whole damn town. <laughs> Can I put you on the spot and try a little exercise with you? I'm nervous. Okay, go. Okay. I'm going to have you close your eyes for me. Okay. And take in a deep breath. And I want you to think about your city. How does it taste, smell? What, um, how does it feel? What is the temperature? Who are the people that you see walking by? And then I want you to just quickly like blurt out like two or three things that makes you think of your city. Barbecue. Definitely barbecue. Um, I I want to say one. Unfortunately, I'm not going to say it on here, but I'll tell you afterwards because it's a major landmark that would kind of give away my exact location. Right, right. That's <laughs> but, fair. But I'll tell you about it later because it's kind of funny. Sorry, everyone. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um... <laughs> uh, and now, now, I will say one of the big things that really pops up is um, the scent of magnolia. Uh, I I grew up surrounded uh, by magnolia trees. So I grew up smelling them. I climbed in them in my grandparents' yard. I have three in my building, surrounding my building alone. So I smell in my mind the scent of magnolia a lot. Um, But also I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out some delicious ideas like barbecue and the scent of magnolia, but I also recognize havoc and chaos i there's lots of traffic and i get frustrated so there's a sense of frustration with that part of the spirit of my city um it's not always this beautiful thing sometimes it's uh hard you know yeah like physically hard like it, it feels like it's a harsh energy Living yeah. in cities can be a little bit harsher than sometimes beautiful meadows in the country, you know? <laughs> it can feel very obstructive, I'm sure. Like yes. Physically Physically. Detour, you know? I mean, I'm Right, getting... right. So uh, I think one of the things that maybe I haven't focused on enough really when thinking of the spirits of things is I have been focusing a lot on the spirit of something like it's beautiful and it's kind and it's wonderful. Sometimes it's angry. Sometimes it sounds like honking horns constantly. Uh, if you live in New York, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I have briefly. And it is. It, it is like the national sound of New York is like the ambulance siren. Um, I actually wanted to ask you that because to me, kind of conceptualizing the idea of larger spirits like that can be really helpful in connecting to the spirit of place or the genus loci or the spirit of the city right we mm-hmm. talk about like like think of new orleans like you when people just talk about new orleans they're like mm-hmm. man that is a that is a wild city i think of cajun food and beignets and and um uh hanging heat. moss heat hot heat. oh my god i think of uh a lively people i think of people who no matter what happens they can smile and laugh and have fun um 
I hear saxophones. Yes, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I hear saxophones walking down Bourbon Street. Um, When I think of Miami, I think of uh, salty air. And I think of uh, cool breezes on hot summer nights and powdery Mm -hmm. sand. So I think these things while they might not be describing the actual experience of the the um, place or even the spirit of the place, but I think it can help us connect. So I think that's why I wanted to ask you that. They're personality traits of the spirit, you know? Right, exactly. And mm-hmm. it's it's the smaller spirits that feed into this larger spirit, right? It's, it's the environment that this place has, right? The plants, the people, the ecosystem, well, it goes back to the mycelia conversation we had earlier. If I want to work with a grand oak at the corner of the crossroads in the street that I live on, that is going to reach out so much further out into the spirit of my city, into my genius loci. Right, exactly. And I, I think it's important to view these things very holistically, right? Like mm-hmm. bacteria, viruses, um, things on an atomic or even subatomic level, right, are part of a greater whole. And that is very important. And, and it all, you know, it goes all the way back up to the universe or God or, or conceptions of spirits um, that are much bigger than us. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so I thought before we kind of get too close to the end, I put up a little question on my Instagram last uh, earlier in the weekend and it was asking, are you an animist? And I was kind of shocked to see that 90% of the people said yes. 10% said no. That's 803 people for yes, 90 people for no. Wow. Um, I know. So obviously this is a, a, a very prevalent mindset that a lot of practitioners have. Um, I didn't realize it was going to come back that saturated so i'm i'm kind of excited i think that this episode will be a a wonderful kind of discussion for a lot of people who are new to animism or have never even heard it before either yeah or even you know just i think it's a good springboard to kind of think of your relationship with place and environment Mm -hmm. and the world absolutely so i thought at the end we could start we could answer a couple questions and then um, we could talk a little bit about pride. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, please. Okay. So the first question is what are some of the animistic bonds you've been able to cultivate in your urban landscape? I think that'll be a really good question for you. I have a few, but go ahead. Um, So I, since I do live in the city, we kind of talked about that. I take a lot of walks with my dogs. I put bird seed out on a regular basis to build relationships with the air spirits, the birds. Uh, I actually grow my own garden on my patio so I can have a connection with some of those plants. But I have a really big connection with a lot of the plants that are in my own neighborhood. Uh, The magnolia trees, I actually have this huge, I mean, like, it's got to be at least a hundred year old oak, the corner of where I live at this crossroads. And I live at a crossroads. So I'm living in a magical place. And it's kind of funny uh, to talk about this because 
one of the things that I found most fascinating recently is learning the history of the building I live in. I live in a, I live in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's just what it is. Uh, in, in this town in Texas I live in. And this building was built in 1985. And when I first moved in, there was a guy that had lived here the entire time. And he said it's changed very much from, from, from when he first moved in. It was almost more motel style since before the big renovation. And it was full of these like happy-go-lucky young gay men living in the neighborhood of this city. And Trigger warning for people who are unaware. Um, unfortunately, that was also during the time of the AIDS epidemic. And he said he watched almost every single person that he knew that lived here either have to move away or they died all here. So yeah. uh, uh, there was a major renovation that changed up the whole thing. And, and my building in itself has a long and very sorted history when it comes to gay people and gay men and, and queer people who, who were ignored, who um, got sick, who experienced a devastating loss. And I think one of the things that as a part of an animist, when I work with the spirits of my home, I have to recognize of all the people that came here before me, I have to think about what that means. And I know that living in this kind of really, you know, queer area, there's a support system that is truly built in. That's not just in the bars down the street. It's not just in the cute restaurants that all cater to the LGBTQ people or the apartment complexes with rainbow flags. It's, it's the spirits, it's the people who lived and died here, who fought for change, who, who devoted their entire lives to the evolution and the, the, building of freedoms of queer people that's here that's right here where i live and that's the major heart of my city where i live that so, was yeah. really beautiful oh thank you you're welcome yeah when when being in a part of in a, a apartment complex or um in a rental environment which i assume you know most people rent right now um <laughs> It's a, it's a tough buyer's market. Um, but it's almost, again, like developing a relationship with neighbors. I mean, you don't have to. Um, I'd prefer not to. I don't want to be friends with my neighbors. Um, but I think it's important to realize that, you again, you're a part of an ecosystem. And on top of that, um, on top of that, we are part of our cities and, and a part of our communities. When I used to live in a city, um, I would actually do something a little nasty. I would go to um, like intersections where car crashes would happen. And I would actually like sweep up the shattered glass from the car crashes and I would add them to like powders um, to lay over people's doorsteps or um, place them on their, you know, their, their wax dolls or their um, poppets or whatever. And that was something that I would like mix with 
several different things, but you know, the, the virtue of a very martial, um, martial as in Mars, not martial as in you, um, <laughs> like, uh, that, that martial virtue of, of a car crash or, you know, it can be a little violent. Um, but yeah, that's, I would like go sweep up, uh, shattered glass from intersections from car crashes. That is animist as shit. <laughs> spooky, spooky. That is super animist. Um, well, let's look at one more question. And I actually think this is an interesting question. Uh, and I kind of want to ask you a little bit more because you've talked about this. What do you think about the idea of an animistic identity of the profane? I, I'm a little confused by this question because I'm like, uh, like profane spirits. Uh, are we talking about the way that I kind of read it, which I thought was kind of interesting? Was uh, it says specifically as an animist, do you believe in the profane? And profane is quotes. I kind of read this as the idea of working with the spirit of profanity, working with the spirit of anger, working with the spirit of absolute, almost destruction. Um, that's not really an inanimate object. You know, that's not really a plant or a stone. It's, it's a concept, profane. And, and as someone who does a lot of um, work within a, a, a political uh, spectrums, which I know you have and you've talked about, you know, using queer rage in your magic, like there is a sense of of calling upon that profane. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, sorry, my my entire praxis is is relatively um, rooted in in quite a bit of profanity. I, I know um, people see a lot of the things that I do as. Uh, there's there's a lot of Bible magic in there, which is uh, very valid and also very true to my my practice as well. But a lot of the times, like there's a lot of blasphemy in my praxis. There's a lot of profanity. There's a lot of cursing. There's a lot of, and I mean physically, like of the tongue, like I am cursing somebody out, or um, you know, I'm speaking very illy of them. So yeah, profanity is a huge part of of what I do. Working in terms of profanity as like as a spirit or as an archetype, I would think that's a little more in the direction that we would be speaking of. Um, I don't really do anything in terms of like the spirit of profanity or the archetype of profanity, but like working with unclean spirits, absolutely working with... um, profane spirit or spirit like spirits of the profane absolutely for sure there is an interesting concept um in like certain cunning traditions and also um like ceremonialist traditions from the early modern period and even like medieval period as well as like to be a better magician you should live a very you should be striving for purity in many aspects of your life, right? And I mean magician separately from witch. Those are separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, but a magician, you know, you shouldn't swear, right? You, you shouldn't um, swear as much or uh, you should try to be very mindful of the things that you say as to not pollute your environment with uh, and your thoughts. You know, you're striving to be closer to God so you have more 
power and more purity and more will to command other spirits and to meet other spirits. So um, I kind of do the exact opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of funny you mentioned that because growing up, my Nana always used to use the term, that's a curse word. You know, if you say fuck or shit, if you say those words, they're curse words. Marshall, we don't say curse words. And it's funny to think about the idea of curse words also being defined as profanity. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, there's a concept that happens. Uh, I can't think of the philosopher uh, who thought about it, but it, it's essentially like, emotional relativity right like your thoughts do not exist within just yourself or your behaviors do not exist within yourself and this feeds into animism and the idea that like when you the way that you behave or the way you speak or the way you think and even the actions that go on in your head right um those impact other people, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're looking upon somebody with jealousy and you're sending them the evil eye, that is because that that is coming from within you and it is affecting them by proxy. So I think it's it's important to be very aware of how we behave and and our thought processes as well. Um, Because if you don't think that that's like, if, if you don't think that you're, your thoughts and the way that your actions feed into other people. I, I don't know how you can be a magician or, or somebody who practices magic. It, it doesn't work just one way, just because you're doing it with intention. Right. Right. And it's kind of funny, a, a middle finger or a fuck off is the new evil eye. No one's walking around purposely <laughs> giving evil eyes anymore, but we tell people to fuck off all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you say like, fuck you, or, 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 you know, when you call someone a horrible name, that's something that's full of malice and hatred. That's, that is in itself a curse. Yeah. There's I'll, this, I'll be at a small one. Right. There's this um, interesting thing of like pointing with people with your, pointing at people with your Saturn finger, right. While you're cursing them. Is that your middle finger? Yeah, yeah, your 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 Saturn finger because you know it's the greater but uh, malefic. So listeners can't see us right now. We're both pointing <laughs> our middle fingers at each other on Zoom. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of profane and unclean, let's get into pride. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Let's chat about it. Let's chat about pride because I think this is a discussion that I've seen a lot happen lately. There's this big online discourse of pride should be family friendly. We want to bring our kids. I don't want you in that jock strap or that leather. And I have seen that you have been very vocal about this on your on your page and your stories. Um, I'm curious do you want to bring that up and kind of start talking about what pride means to you and how a lot of these things factor into what makes pride, what makes gay and queer celebration? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I was going to ask you what, what your thoughts are on it before we get into mine. I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody is relatively aware that um, I'm a spicy, angry queer, but before I do that, I would just uh-huh. like to remind everybody the context that we're we're going to be speaking in, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Pride uh, in America started in the um, 1960s with the Stonewall riots at the, at the tail end of the 1960s, and it was started by 
uh, a woman named Marsha P. Johnson and um, another um, person who started punching cops. And I'm very sorry, I cannot off the top of my head think of her name. Um, But this was a queer um, Black trans woman who threw a brick through uh, police officers. This started a three-day riot uh, that we now celebrate as pride because the act of um, rebuking police officers, repelling cops. uh, The thing that people don't understand about pride is that prior to the Stonewall riots, New York was a hellscape for... Uh, for queer people. The world was in general, right? But New York especially had a problem with LGBTQIA people. There's a really good uh, documentary on Martha P. Johnson on Netflix. Uh, I highly recommend everybody go watch it. Um, It talks much about her life and it also talks a little bit about what was going on at the time in New York, such as obscenity laws, right? Where if you were considered to be obscene, either by wearing opposite sex clothing um, or not dressing as your gender quote, um, you can be arrested. So obscenity laws, um, public sex had to be a thing because Uh, If you are in an environment where the world wants to kill you for for your sexuality, um, you have to hide and you have to find places where you're allowed to love your partner or um, whoever you're screwing. uh, And you have to find that, that, that common space, right? Which is why public sex and cruising and things like that were a really big deal. So prior to all of this, we have this culmination of, of rage and of anger that results in the Stonewall riots. Um, and now we celebrate, right? But I think when you look at things like the Dyke March and um, the Stonewall riots and uh, the explosion of the church, uh, Sorry, I can't remember exactly what church that was, but there was um, a massacre that happened um, several, like, I think it was back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, one of the two, one of the three. And it was a violent uh, burning of a church where they, where a bunch of gay men were at. Um, violent, violent history. And so we, we have to remember this rage and we have to remember this oppression and what we fought for in pride. And pride is a celebration, but pride is a celebration that we're not rioting and we're not burning police buildings to the ground. and We're not being rageful, angry, right? So I think I, wanted, I want to set that context up first before we get into our personal feelings about pride, because I think we are very quick to forget the AIDS crisis in the 80s, which I don't remember, I wasn't even born. Um, But we're quick to forget those things. And that's dangerous, in my opinion. Yeah, and and that's kind of what is wanting, 
obviously Pride has nothing to do with animism, but we're at that time of the year and I wanted to bring that up because we're fucking queer witches and we're going to celebrate Pride and I want to celebrate Pride in a way that that celebrates all aspects of Pride and I think some of the way in which the acceptance of LGBTQIA people has been wonderful in other ways Sometimes it kind of means uh, uh, making it acceptable, making it seem more family friendly. The thing is, is, and I love that this was actually on, on, on your story today. The word family friendly has been used against queer people for so long. To now say you want to make pride family friendly is almost an insult because there were so many years where TV shows, movies, songs, books were all completely changed to rid themselves of any queer people or scenarios or stories because it wasn't family friendly. Chandler from Friends was supposed to be gay. Really? Yes, he was supposed to be a gay character and they ended up nixing that. Uh, uh, Fried Green Tomatoes. The book was amazing, but it was about a love between two women that ended up just being friends in the movie. I grew up watching Sailor Moon and there were two Sailor, it's just so silly, but there were, there were two of these Sailor Scouts that were lesbians and in the American dubbed version, they made them cousins because it needed to be more family friendly. And now we have Disney Channel and even Nickelodeon shows. Uh, the Rugrats is coming out with a, new movie, with a new movie version and the twins mom is finally coming out loud and proud. And this is like, it's 2021. And we still have people freaking out about their kids having LGBTQIA characters in their shows because it's not family friendly. So you cannot continue to use that word and throw it at me in a way that you now want to make pride more family friendly because you've used it against me for so long and now you want to force it down my throat to accept me. And that's not okay. That's not what it means to be accepting of queer people. You have to accept all of the queerness of people. And that involves the leather community. That involves jock straps and guys on stripper poles and dykes on bikes. That involves all of it. And if you ignore any part of that history to make it more family friendly, then you're just bastardizing what it means to be proud of my queerness. I think the point that a lot of people miss in this discourse is the fact that sex Sex, S-E-X, mm-hmm. butt stuff, sodomy, uh, going outside of the, quote, marital conceptualizations of, of um, sex within marriage. That is what we mean when we've talked about pride. That is what we mean when we talk about queer rights and gay people. It is, it is our sexuality it is our, our fucking, it is, uh, it is sodomy being the discussion of conversation. And I don't just mean that there's more one way, more than one way um, to skin a cat. I, I, I mean sodomy in, in a very broad sense of, of um, coming from the perspective of a gay man. Um, but there are other ways that those topics and conversations get passed around the boardroom, right? So we speak about these things and and we we are so quick to forget that you know marriage equality only happened in 2015 right but the thing is is that marriage equality was was really great don't get me wrong i'm, I'm very happy that it happened 
but it it reduced us down to a heteronormative standard. And that is why I think it is very dangerous to think that just because you've won this one part of equality still does not mean that you are a part of an equate system. So that is why we have pride. That is why um, we have things like uh, Folsom Street Fair and Fantasy Fest in Key West, even though that's not like a strictly gay thing. But Well, you can't really take the sex out of LGBTQIA people because all of it involves... I mean, being gay doesn't involve a sex act, but it, it's described same-sex relations for mm. for for people. It invo- even someone who is asexual is still right. is still involves the absence of sex. So to try to take sex out of pride, you're removing everything that makes it kind of what it is. So it doesn't necessarily mean we're saying that that it's reduced to that simple thing. But when you try to take out some of the root of what that means, you're taking out a huge portion of not just history, but out of the current situation in Texas, we used to have pride in September before it was moved back to June, because that's when Texas got rid of its own sodomy law, which I believe was 1991. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up particularly asexuality too. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, not going to be the es- expert on that subject, but like I think even just inclusionary language about, you know, not leaving, uh, not leaving it at LGBTQ, right? I, mm-hmm. I I try my best to say LGBTQIA. Uh, I actually plus. prefer the most. I prefer is the Alphabet Mafia. Yeah, yeah, very that, very <laughs> that, exactly. And I, I think that's very important because. That's inclusionary of the fact that, unfortunately, being asexual is is halfway uh, a political act in itself, too, right? So I, I think we have to be very inclusionary about um, asexuality. But but you're right, we we can't reduce pride. We're not reducing ourselves down to a sex act by celebrating the fact that we have overcome being just a topic of a sex act well, that's, right that's literally what we were we were a law that had to be excluded so when people talk about straight pride today like well i want a straight pride and like two people show up right because because every single day get it in your car get in traffic that's straight pride go in line somewhere you're in a straight pride parade you have lived this way not you obviously but people who have lived within a heteronormative world have been living every single day with straight pride. So the fact that you can mack your fucking girlfriend in a parking lot somewhere is, is straight pride. Congrats. Without any risk of fear. Right. Yeah. I'll never forget. I moved to Orlando, right. When I, when I first moved there and I started seeing somebody, it would eventually be a relatively important relationship in my life and we're not together anymore. But, like, I remember it was, like, our first date. We were being cute. I was being cute. I'm super cute. I held his hand in public. And he, like, pulled it away. And I was like, oh, sorry. Um, And he was like, no, no, it's fine. I just, I, like, I don't do PDA unless it's, like, in our spaces. Because, like, it is not safe. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I've, like, and I never really even thought about that. Um, We live in the South. I mean, unfortunately, it's going to be a very realistic experience that, 
pride for me is so important because the first one I ever went to, I was literally scared at some points. Yeah. I was afraid of one of possibly being seen by someone that I wouldn't want to see me there. I was afraid of, of what it, I was scared because it was my first one and I was exposing myself to this whole new world. But at the same time, I was really scared about what would happen if something went wrong. What, what would happen if, if there was someone who didn't want to see that? And obviously once I got to the pride parade, that's not what was going on in the parade, but I mean, that was the mindset that I grew up with thinking was normal because it was at the time. And we, we, when just not to bring up the whole idea of straight pride parade again, but when people say like, why can't I have one? It's because straight people didn't have to experience being afraid of that. They didn't have to experience coming out to their parents. Exactly. And also what the fuck do you have to be proud about? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Being default is just fine, but there are so many settings yeah many different settings <laughs> lots of variables i i also find it uh, just bringing it back to capitalism <laughs> i find it uh very difficult to to see this this entity that is pride now i i'll be very honest i i have a lot of issues with pride today mm-hmm. um or or the pride that i can ever remember right um you know, I'm I'm not super old and I haven't been doing this for a very long time, but I, I, I just, every pride that I've ever been to, it's just a, and I get it. It's a celebration. And I, I want us to celebrate and live carefree. Clearly that is the entire standpoint of my argument. I, I have an issue with this mass market celebratory bank holiday. You know, if, if, if Bank of America can have a pride float, like, I don't want to be there. Right? Like, you know, they're, they're funding a whole bunch of, of organizations. Like, like if, if Chick-fil-A is going to slap a rainbow flag to, to cover up, up the fact that, like, they support, um, uh, like, anti-LGBTQIA charities, like, I, I don't want to be there. Like, I don't, I don't want to. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, obviously, me and Austin are going to have different opinions on lots of things. And this is kind of where I think some of our, our opinions slightly start to differ. And I think that's totally okay. Yeah, for um, sure. I think because I grew up having that fear a lot and, and hiding kind of who I was up until the point that I couldn't anymore. For me, I have to admit, I got excited seeing mainstream things supporting uh, LGBTQIA people, the Alphabet Mafia, like when when Doritos came out with their with their gay pride chips, you know I got a bag. You know I got several bags. <laughs> yeah, as as you should, as, as I should. But gay so rights. yeah, gay rights. So I, well, I completely understand what you're saying. Sometimes this capitalization of oh, hey, hey, we're a major company. We got to get hip. We got to get with it. Queer people are cool. Let's go ahead and have a float. But then they turn around and they actually donate a lot of money towards anti-LGBTQ causes. Yeah, that's fucked up. That's that's horrible. And I completely agree. Um, I think there's pros and cons to this. When more mainstream businesses show LGBTQIA support, when they show that rainbow flag, it does, in my mind, maybe this is just my personal immediate experience, it creates a space that helps to normalize being queer. 
to a degree, it helps to kind of take it out from this whole pocket of exclusivity, this whole pocket of of over thereness, if you know what I mean. I actually a hundred percent agree with you. My only issue is is that if you're like, uh, see, I think that's a great step, Marshall. Mm-hmm. My issue is is if you're gonna do all that then you better be providing health care for trans women. You better be enforcing and uh, like anti-discriminatory practices in the workplace. You better know. And I can tell you from experience that I've, I've, I've literally been at a salon where we have participated in a pride parade when I first started, actually before I even started, right? But I had got the job. So I was there. And we were on a pride float and not two weeks later, I was told you dress too queer to work here. And it was very ironic. It was very, and I had known other people who were non-binary and trans who weren't passing enough for that workplace who had been fired from there as well. And they should never have, they had, you know, pull stickers all over their front door and this, that, and the third. And, and so I, I agree. I think it's really great when companies like Bank of America, um, you know, enact these, these great, like, first little steps. But unfortunately, until I see or know the practices of anti-discrimination or the practices of enforcing accessibility to healthcare or counseling or protection for LGBTQIA people, particularly queer, trans, and non-binary men and women um, and people in between. Uh, I don't, I don't think that it's good enough. I, I see it as a marketing scam or a marketing technique. And as somebody who um, studied marketing, it, it's, 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 a, it, it's, that's, it, that is what it is. Hey, no, I completely understand that perspective as well. Cause I've seen that very much. So uh, on several businesses that are around that have, that I know their history have no business pretending to be a supporter. It is unfortunate when people, when we end up as a people getting used to sell something. That sucks. Yeah, absolutely. Except for Doritos. Doritos are okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, They can use me all they want. Yes. (laughs) Nobody look up the practices of Doritos. I can't be disproved on this. I need them to be a supporter so I can keep getting my Cool Ranch. And Oreos, too. They said gay rights for Lady Gaga. Um, (laughs) And... um, also just being very mindful i think as well of of anti-police practices i just read an article recently that that new york pride will no longer be um participating in uh or like they will no longer be having the nypd as a part of their pride parade and honestly i think that's amazing as i say historically enough that alone should have always been that way considering it started with having to fight back against them um and, and just so because uh, i remember when you were telling the story about about stonewall for anyone that doesn't know before this riot broke out the police had raided that building and uh, so many times they had arrested so many people for being queer literally so yeah. when this riot actually broke out it was the crux it was the, like the crescendo of i will not tolerate 
you treating me like an like inhumanly any longer. And I'm going to do that by throwing a brick in your face. So no one can say that riots do not create change because they obviously do. That's why we have pride today. Yes. As we know, I'm very, um, using whatever means necessary to make your voice heard, um, collectively as a group of people. Uh, I don't think that police officers should be a part of pride. Um, I'm not a, f- I, I am a strong believer in defunding police and uh, redistributing the massive amounts of money that police uh, take from taxpayer dollars and reinforcing that into institutional change into bettering communities, better health care, better accessibility to food, shelter, um, better accessibility to mental mental health and and social services and resources so i think that um police officers don't need to be a part of pride uh un- unless you take that ba- unless you are queer right but i think you also need to leave that badge uh at home personally in my opinion and no, no, I, I could definitely understand that perspective and, and, and definitely agree with it, especially for New York specifically. Like that in itself is kind of like a historical, oh my gosh, obvious. <laughs> um, so just to kind of end this with a hint of a devil's advocate, yeah. <laughs> as, I like to, as I like to do, um, I also really understand the perspective of a lot of parents and young teens who want to expose their children to um to queer lifestyles they want to bring their young gay kids to parades queer uh, queer parents who have kids and want to bring their their babies their strollers their kids listen i completely understand that perspective i was a foster parent like i i I know what you're talking about i went to (laughs) i went to pride when i was a very young teenager so i understand the need to want to make it family friendly but you have to understand what that actually means. And that means to take away the root, the root cause behind why we're celebrating pride. So when you want to remove all the things that you feel may not be child friendly, you're removing a huge portion of us. And I think that needs to be something that, that kind of, it's going to be a parent's choice. It's that what they, what they do with their kids, what they do with their kids, how they raise them, how they want to explain things to them. But it shouldn't be our responsibility as queer people to rein ourselves in so you can bring your kids. That needs to be the responsibility of the parent to tell them about this history. If they feel like, you know what, I don't want them to see a bunch of uh, men in leather jock straps. You know what? Take them for a little picnic when it gets that float comes by. Or tell them about a group of people who all got together who like to wear similar outfits. I don't care what you tell them, but you can't just say you need to remove that from my parade because I want to bring my kid. That's and, not fair. <laughs> I mean, also that's why we're, that's why we have things like the Rugrats character mom as a queer person in a kid's Nickelodeon show. Right. Yeah. Like that, that's why that's happening. That's why we have like shows that are relatively appropriate for, I think, teenagers. I don't know. I don't watch it. But, like, like Love, Simon and things like that. I actually have a lot of issues with that show. But personally, I mean, that, that's why we have it, right? Is, is, is we have to expose 
the world that queer people exist. We're not a concept. Trans people are not a concept. We exist. Uh, we are not conceptualizations and figments of imagination. We exist in this world. And we are a part of it, whether you agree with it or not, royally you. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's why you have those things. And I also, before we head out, have to give a criticism to LGBTQIA spaces as well. Because why aren't there more spaces that are not revolved around club lifestyle, right? Um, in, in this modern age, I understand mm-hmm. the struggles that we have, right? I understand why we have this issue. But like, queer coffee spaces, queer, um, you know, places that are are, are removing alcohol, nightlife, um, that don't have an age barrier, you know, 18 and up, 21 and up, those things will also create a better environment for young queer people and their families. And I think that's going to be really important as well. But pride's not the place. (laughs) (laughs) No, I completely agree. That's such a wonderful constructive piece of criticism because the one coffee shop that we have on the street that I that I live near in my neighborhood. I had a gorgeous little coffee shop, these fun little couches, they had great food, but they slowly started to lose business. And when they decided to even add alcohol to it, the neighboring clubs worked together as an institution to fight them so they couldn't Ah, Stop. Yeah, they closed. They've now since been a wine bar, a juice bar, another type of juice bar. And actually, I don't even think I know what's there now. Maybe a Subway. Damn. I know. That's really sad. So so that criticism is very real. Uh, Sometimes, just like any other type of community, there will be some internal cannibalism. Mm. I do love Long Pig. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that lovely ending. (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody. And I I hope this is a very magical June for you. Um, Stay vigilant, stay queer, stay um, angry, but also find joy. Mm -hmm. And I also want to thank all of the queer allies out there listening to this and have listened all the way through this because I get this may not be everyone's cup of rainbow tea yeah yeah. (laughs) but but as an ally you need to know a lot of these things you need to know some of the perspectives i know when i tell some of my friends who are straight the first gay uh cruise i ever went on the instructor said not the instructor the director said look around i want to ask how many of you is this your first time being on a gay cruise and i was the one that raised my hand And they said, I want you to take a moment to think about the fact that this might be some of the first time ever that you are a majority. And I just started crying. It like came out of nowhere because I had never experienced that before. I'd never been in a majority before in an enclosed space, in 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 a town, in a city, in a country. I've never been a majority as a queer person. So to have that kind of number jokingly be thrown at me on a cruise ship and start crying. It was an emotional experience, but it was so liberating. So straight allies, if you're listening to this, I want you to know how much, not only are you appreciated, but when you listen and understand some of our perspectives, 
even though you haven't lived them and still support them unquestioningly, you mean the world to us. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. And I hope you have an amazing Pride Month. And I hope uh, if you really get into animism, I hope this has also been helpful for you. I forgot we did a whole episode on animism before this. I know, I feel like we've been speaking <laughs> on, on queerness for a while. Um, well, we have some very exciting things coming up this month, I think. So stay mm-hmm. tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you so much. Thank you.